Let's begin our study by going to the passage that uh, Pastor Andy read out of Matthew 7, 13 and 14. I remember when I was a child, some very, very key things, very, some very important things, some components about how church was conducted back in the dark ages, students, okay? Back in the dark ages. We didn't have really cell phones back then. Uh, we didn't have color television. Uh, there, there was no computers. You know, it was that kind of thing. And uh, no texting. We didn't even know what texting. The only text we had was the Bible. We called that the text. So, you know, it was back in the dark ages. And what we did when we went to church as, as a family, we sat as a family. You remember that, guys? How many of you remember those days? There was no children's church, no, no, no place for the kiddies to go while the parents are in the, the big room, you know, and those kind of things. We all sat together. Now, there are many things that I remember. My mom peaching, pinching the fire out of me to keep me still in the service. And, and I know young adults sometimes have a tendency with their young children today, how much do they really hear? You would be surprised how much I heard in all of my, you know, ADHD disorder. <laughs> and uh, one of the key things that I remember as a child was at the end of every service, we always had an invitation. I mean, it, it was without question. Sunday morning and Sunday night. Every Sunday morning and every Sunday night, I watched my dad stand in this very spot in the church where he was pastor, hold out his hands, and he would invite people to place their faith and trust in Jesus and accept them as their Savior and their Lord every Sunday. And on one of those occasions, on a Sunday night, I stepped out from the pew and where I was seated, and I walked down the aisle by myself, took my father's hand, and told him that I wanted to trust Jesus as my Savior and Lord. I remember that moment like it was yesterday. I remember being presented to the church out of, out of, after filling some sort of card as if they didn't know who I was, and then... After that, I was presented to the church, and my mom, who was seated in a place where I could see her, was crying, and I couldn't figure out why she was crying when I felt so relieved and so filled with joy. Well, they were tears of joy, weren't they? Not tears of sadness. I remember that like it was yesterday. I can remember then after that going with my dad to the remote parts of Minas Gerais, a state in the country of Brazil, where there was no witness in these county seat towns. No one had ever really heard the gospel. He would, with us as a family, drive in, in into the town in our Willis Jeep. He would set up a, 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 an 8-millimeter projector. He would put up a screen and show a multicolored Moody film in multicolor. Remember, there was no color then. It was all black and white. And in these remote parts of Brazil, they had never seen a film, much less a colored, a multicolored film. And the people would come in droves into the county square to watch the movie. And then at the conclusion of the movie, my dad would stand on the Willis Jeep, preach the gospel, give an invitation. People would respond. He would take them to the side, take their names and their addresses, give them some material, and start home cell groups. Out of that, and he'd go to the next town, and he would go to the next town, and we did that as a family during those invitation times. I remember that like it was yesterday. I remember many, not all, 
of the probably 10,000 plus times I have stood in this very spot in several churches that I have pastored at the conclusion of Sunday morning and Sunday nights when we had those giving an invitation at every service and pleading for people to answer the call of Christ to discipleship, and people have come. And I don't know how many people have been baptized as a result of the ministries of our churches and the evangelistic effort of many of our members, but there were many who have come down the aisle, have publicly declared their intent, and have committed to follow Jesus. Thousands of times over these, should I say, 35-plus years of standing in the pulpit, even as a student pastor, and extending an invitation. You know, it's sad to think that invitations in most evangelical churches today have gone by the wayside. If you go to a contemporary service today, you will sit in a service that's pretty much like ours, but at the end of it, there will be no invitation to publicly respond or answer the call of Christ to evangelism or to renewal. Churches are getting away from the invitation. So much so that our baptismal rate is down in many of our churches. And I think it's largely because of that public invitation time where we are constantly admonishing and inviting people to answer the call of Christ to step outside of the crowd into the smaller community of faith and to trust Jesus as their Savior. Well, the question that we often have is why are they doing that? I don't really know. Here at Emmanuel, we've not gone to that length yet. And as far as I'm concerned, we'll never go to that extent where we no longer extend an invitation following the services. But here we see that it is basically in the New Testament, a New Testament practice. Where do you get that? Well, in Matthew, we learn of John the Baptist, who was the first in the New Testament. When he was preaching, he would preach about repentance and extend an invitation to people to step outside of the crowd into the water and publicly de declare their intent to repent of their sins and to be baptized. He did that first in the New Testament. Jesus responded to that invitational call on one particular time, stepped into the waters, and was baptized by John the Baptist. Why? As an example for us that we must follow the commandments and obedience to Christ and to be baptized. The first declaration of our intent of our faith. So Jesus answered that call. He answered that invitation, not because he needed to, because he was a sinner, but of obedience to the Father. We then see Jesus in Matthew early on in the first couple of chapters. As he begins his ministry, Matthew records that Jesus first then began to preach a gospel of repentance. Now, I don't know about you, but that says to me that Jesus practiced not only the preaching of repentance like John the Baptist, but also extended an invitation for people to respond to the call of repentance. I'm convinced Jesus gave invitations for people to respond to the call of salvation. When he was traveling alongside the road that was next to the sea, he turned to his disciples, four of them, and invited them to follow him. That was an invitation. And they dropped what they were doing, and they answered the invitation, they answered the call, and they followed Christ. Christ continually, constantly, I think, after preaching, issued an invitation. We learn Simon Peter in the book 
of Acts, early on, after Pentecost and the Holy Spirit had fallen upon the people, he stepped out into the city streets of Jerusalem, filled with the Holy Spirit, and he preached a gospel message. And following that gospel message, what did he do? He extended an invitation, and 3,000 people were saved. Another time we record, I think there were 5,000 people that were saved. An extraordinary amount of people who have responded to the call, the invitation of salvation. Possibly you here this morning are seated, seated where you are, and you are seated where you are because at some point, at some time, you too heard someone declaring the gospel and issuing an invitation, and you maybe privately have done that, but publicly you stepped outside of where you were seated, you came down the aisle, and you publicly declared your intent and your faith in Jesus. I'm convinced that Jesus at the conclusion of his Sermon on the Mount, is now going into a very intentional invitation time where he is inviting those to step outside of this large crowd that he's addressing on that, on that mount, in that Sermon Mount, and he's inviting them to come into the very small core of believers, of disciples of Jesus. This is the conclusion of his message. It is the invitation to step outside and of where they are and where they've been and into an intimate love relationship with him, not just as their Savior, but as their Lord, the leader of their lives. So Christ is calling them and us today to enter into not just a narrow gate, but a narrow way. So I want us to take a look at the call that he extends to those to whom he's addressing in this Sermon on the Mount. There are five aspects about this call. First of all, we see that it is a decisive call. It is a decisive call. Notice he begins this invitation by simply using the word enter. Enter. This word enter is basically a command. It is in the imperative. This word is basically an invitation which he is commanding them to step outside of the crowd and to enter into an intimate relationship with him and into the way that he has just described in 5, 6, and 7, 1 through 11. He's saying, I'm inviting you, I'm commanding you, I am calling you to step outside of yourselves and into this intimate relationship with me. He is commanding them, but he is calling them. Because the word enter by the narrow gate is also a call. Because the word enter is in the passive voice. And the passive voice means that Christ is the one who is taking the initiative. It is God through Christ who is initiating the call. These people in this crowd have not initiated the call. It is Christ who is initiating the call. And after laying before them this beautiful gospel presentation and what is required of those who desire to be his disciples, he is inviting them then to answer the call of discipleship. But notice the word enter is also in the middle voice. And what that indicates to us is it means that it is a decision that they must make. In other words, he's not going to make them or force them to make it. It's an individual, personal decision in which they themselves are going to act upon the invitation or the command to follow him. And he's saying, come and follow me. But we see that it says he 
in this word says enter how. How are they to enter? What are they to step into? What are they to go through? He said enter by the narrow gate. That is, that, is, that is critical, and we're going to look at that at a couple of other points as we begin to digest basically this, this, this very small part of this long invitation of Jesus. And he says, they are to enter in by the narrow gate. What does it mean, by the narrow gate? That is a commission. Well, I want you to go back to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 with me, if you would. Turn to Matthew 5, 17. We're going to look at the gospel of Matthew in a couple of places as we go through this points of the call of Christ. And so you might want to keep your finger in Matthew because we're going to look through there. So Matthew 5, 17, if you remember what he indicated early on in his Sermon on the Mount, he said in verse 17, Matthew chapter 5, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What did Jesus come to do? He came to fulfill the law. You see, Jesus has just gone through a long discourse as to what is required in order for those who desire to follow Christ to answer that call and to follow him. We saw last week where Jesus has asked us to do something that we in and of ourselves cannot do. How can we love our neighbor as ourselves? How can we treat others as we want to be treated? This is an impossibility. It helps us understand that we are completely relying upon someone outside of ourselves to do for us what we cannot do. And he's saying, I want you to enter in, but you, while you're to make a choice to enter in, cannot do it in and of yourself or by yourself or on your own. You must enter in through me. I am the way. I am the way. The life. John 10, 9, Jesus said, I am the door, and if any man enters me, he will be saved. John 14, 5, 6, Thomas said to him, after he told him he was going to depart, he says, Lord, Lord, how do you know, how do we know where you are going, and how can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the gate. Jesus is the way. Enter by the narrow gate, I am the door. I am the way to salvation. Acts 14, 12. And there is, he says, salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the way. He is the only way. He is the only door by which we can enter in, not in and of ourselves, but completely independent upon what he has done, what he has finished, his completed work on the cross. It's not what we do, but it's what he has done. And so we enter by the narrow gate. We enter into this path, this journey. We travel this way of life as we place our faith and trust in Jesus. Paul said it very well when he said, By grace through faith, in that it is not of yourselves, but it is the, what does he say? The gift of God. And so we require mercy. We require grace. We cannot bring anything in and of ourselves. We must come by grace through faith. And we enter in this beautiful way that leads to life, not just eternal life, but abundant life. We enter through the narrow gate, and that is a decisive call for you and I to trust him and only him for our salvation. It's a decisive call. Not only is it a decisive call, but I want you to notice, secondly, that it is a demanding call. 
This call to discipleship that Jesus laid before his people as he's addressing them in the Sermon on the Mount is incredibly demanding, isn't it? We've, we've taken, what, 10 months now to look at what Christ has said in this one sermon in regard to many of the demands of those who desire to follow Christ. And he says in this passage, enter by the narrow gate, the narrow gate, narrow. It's a narrow gate. That means there's not much room to get through or to get by. Remember when uh, Patty and I first got married and we lived in an apartment in, Grand, in Garland, Texas. It was a very small apartment. And the walls uh, were not um, uh, soundproofed. Uh, Patty used to go in the bathroom and put on her makeup in the morning and sing harmony with the guy in the bathroom adjacent to ours in the next apartment. I mean, that's the kind of apartment it was. It was a kind of apartment that when you walked into the kitchen, if you had the, uh, the, the uh, refrigerator door open, you couldn't get by. I mean, that's how small it was. It was tiny. It was a very narrow passage into that kitchen. And that, that's what he's talking about. It's a very narrow entrance. It's a very narrow gate. He then, in 14a, he also says, for the gate is narrow. Again, he reminds those that he's addressing and those of us who are reading that the gate is narrow. That means it's not very wide. But notice verse 13 in the second part of the text. He said, but there is another gate, and that gate is wide. So he is comparing a wide gate to a narrow gate. A wide gate basically is a gate that is spacious. It's a gate that is just broad. It's a gate that many can go through at the same time. It's a very wide gate. And many can go through at the same time carrying many, many things in that gate or through that door as they enter it. It is a very self-centered, self-indulgent, and a very self-righteous gate. It's an entrance into a journey or to a, a way of traveling or a way of living that is very broad, that is very wide, that is not very restrictive, and that is very convenient. But notice he talks about him being the gate as a very narrow gate. What does it mean, narrow? It means exactly that, a narrow space to enter. It's tight, it's restrictive, and it is singular. It is one gate. Not many. It's not very broad. It's very tight. And in order for you and I to go through it, we'd have to go through it in a relationship with Jesus. We already talked about that. It's a very relational gate in that the only way to go through the gate is to go through the gate through having a personal encounter, a personal relationship with Jesus. But as we go through that gate, it's a very restrictive gate in the sense that you can't take a lot of stuff through the gate with you. As a matter of fact, you can't take anything through the gate with you. You must take it all off in order to get through the very narrow gate. You can very, very just, just kind of squeeze by without anything to hinder as an encumbrance of getting through the entrance. In other words, it's a very self-denying sort of entrance. In other words, you've got to die to yourself. You've got to relinquish and release the old life and go through the narrow gate into a new life. In other words, and we're going to see it in a minute, as you enter, you continue to live the way that you enter. 
very self-sacrificing, very self-denying. You cannot bring anything with you. You enter in it with absolutely nothing to bring. You bring nothing, including your own righteousness. Even that you have to discard. Take a look at Matthew again, if you would, to Matthew 4, 17. Notice the words of Jesus. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. To repent of what? To repent of your old life and to embrace, leave every part of your old life and enter into the new life. To repent, to disrobe, to discard, to remove, to take away every encumbrance from the old life and enter into a new life. You don't bring any of the old life into the new life. You can't take any of this world's stuff through the gate into the life that Jesus is offering. Leave it all behind. Lay it all down. Repent of it. Release it. Let it go and go through the narrow gate, taking nothing, nothing with yourself as you enter into it. Notice Matthew 4, though, verse 18 through 22. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. Notice their response. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. They left their nets. What did they bring when Jesus invited them to follow him? Nada, nothing, zero. They left their livelihood. They left their nets. They were fishermen. Without that, they couldn't have made a living. They left the old life and entered into the new life. Look again at verse 21 and going on from there. He saw two other brothers, James and John of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Verse 22, immediately after calling him, they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. What did they leave? Everything. And that's what Jesus is trying to indicate here, that the call is a very demanding call. And when we answer the call of discipleship, when we answer the call of Christ, inviting us to trust him as our Savior and to commit to his leadership and lordship of our lives, we enter into that relationship bringing absolutely nothing with us. The sad reality is that when we came to faith in Christ, we came into that relationship with him that way, but sometimes we want to go back through the door into the old world and bring some of that with us, don't we? And we can't. The old life is gone. We bring nothing into the relationship with him. Well, it's a decisive call, a demanding call, but it's also a difficult call. Look at the text again in verse 13, the third part of the sentence. He said, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide... The gate is wide and the way is easy. The gate is wide, but the way is easy. What does he mean by easy? It means, the word actually means broad. It means it is comfortable. It means it is non-restrictive. It means that there are no limitations to my self-indulgence. How many of you take freeway to the church every Sunday morning? Anybody here take a freeway? Why do you take a freeway? Why? There's a lot of space. There's three lanes. It's fast. 
It's comfortable. I can travel at a higher rate of speed and somehow convince myself I'm going to get there quicker. Right? And Jesus is saying here that as you go into the wide gate, that gate leads to a way of life that is very broad. It is very comfortable. It is non-restrictive. It is very easy. It's very easy. It's very easy. It's very easy. It's fast. It's comfortable. Less constraints. No demands. But notice verse 14. It says, for the gate that is narrow leads to a way that is hard. When you go through the tight gate, when you trust Jesus as your Savior, what do you get? Abroad. You don't go through real tightly and then it opens up. It's, it continues to be narrow. It continues to be restrictive. It continues to be uncomfortable. It's hard to travel. It's not easy street. I don't care what these charismatics want to try to convince people when they sell them on the gospel of Jesus and the life that is available to those of us who place our faith and trust in the gospel. But it is a very difficult call. It is not a road that is, that it, that is filled with eat, drink, and be merry and prosperous and healthy and happy and all of that all the time. That is, that is not reality. Just simply not. Jesus said the way leads to a very hard way. The, the word hard means to, to squeeze. Think of that. It means to squeeze. It means to compress. The way of Jesus is a squeezing. It is a compression that takes place. It is tight. It never really opens up, really. It is, it is hard. It squeezes us. It is Passive in the sense, this word is passive in the sense that God is doing that. It is God who is acting in our lives, squeezing us, perfecting us, molding us, shaping us, taking away and adding what is necessary so that we reflect the nature and the character of Christ. It's perfect also, the word hard, is a perfect in the sense that is it happens at the moment we enter into the gate. We have a tendency that, you know, if I leave it all behind and I go through the gate, then things are going to ease up for me, and, and they don't. From the very moment you enter into the gate, it stays like that all the way. Matter of fact, it gets tighter, more uncomfortable, more restrictive, more demanding, more difficult. You don't believe that? Well, let's, let's look at the verse here uh, in uh, Matthew 10. Here's what Matthew says in Matthew 10, verse 38. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. I don't know about you, but does a cross seem like it's comfortable? Is a, is a cross non-restrictive? Is a, is a cross delightful? Is a cross painless? You turn to Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Through 25, then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Forever would save his life, would lose it, but whoever would lose his life for my sake will find it. That's sort of a paradox, isn't it? You want to save your life, you got to lose it. It's the life of the crucifixion. It's the life of living out the crucified life. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witness, let us lay aside 
every weight and every sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The way for the disciples of Jesus, the way of the kingdom is not a broad way. It is a constricted way. It is not an open way. It is a tight way. There are many today, and the sad part is, when we come to faith in Christ, all of a sudden there's this license to do whatever I want without any restrictions or without any constrictions. I don't want any pressure. I don't want any squeezing. I don't want any hardship. I don't want any difficulty. Well, you know what? If you come to Emmanuel Baptist Church, we're going to teach the scriptures which tell you it ain't easy. It isn't easy. I mean, I just, we just read a, an email from a, a friend of ours that is in a foreign country who for years has been trying to uh, proclaim the gospel of Christ in a very difficult part of the world. And a brand new convert was summoned by the city council. And some altercation happened there. I don't know if it was before or after the meeting. I don't know the details. I don't know. I mean, we read it coming in. And a new found believer was stabbed to death on the streets of this, this, this missionaries, it was a brand new convert. I mean, I remember years ago, he, he was trying to witness and couldn't get anybody to accept the, the gospel. And God has been blessing the seeds that he's been planting, and there's been a harvest. And there have been several dozens who have accepted Christ, and he started this fellowship, and he was starting to do leadership training, and God was beginning to grow and to mushroom this work in this foreign country. And all of a sudden, this brand new convert was stabbed in his chest and was martyred the fact that he was a Christ follower. Does that sound easy to you? I mean, do we, have to, do we have to wake up, church, and realize that in the end times, persecution is going to come more severe than it has ever been since the, the foundation of the church? I know we in America, we think we're sort of immune from that, but I'm going to tell you, it's coming to America. It's coming to America. It's just a matter of time. And there will be many of us who are breathing today who will stand as martyrs for the cause of Christ in the United States of America. Because it will happen. And the call that Christ extends to his disciples is a very constricted, hard, difficult road to travel. It is a way that is not easy, but it is a path, a journey, a lifestyle that is hard, that is restrictive, that is going to squeeze every ounce of, of, of you that's unlike Jesus to make you more and more like him. And I tell you, the journey is worth the destination. We're going to look at that in a minute. So it's a decisive call, a demanding call, a difficult call, but it is a divisive call. I've mentioned that somewhat in what I just read. But Jesus says in verse 13, and those who enter it or enter by it are many. Those who enter by it are many. Those who enter by the wide gate and travel the wide road are many. You would ask, 
Why would they travel that path knowing that the destination is leading them to destruction? Well, the word and the answer to that is found in the word those who enter, those who enter. This is also in the passive, meaning that it is something that is taking or that is acting for them. There is a compulsion that is at work in them that is driving them toward the wide gate and the broad way. What is it? It's their carnality. It's their depravity. It's the fallen nature they got when Adam sinned against God in the Garden of Eden. For we're all born with this Adamic nature, this fallen nature, and that is driving them. It is almost automatic. It is a human reaction. It is a human drive to choose the wide gate and the broad way that is unrestrictive, that is permissive, that lets me do anything, anywhere, anytime that I choose to do because my world is self-centered and I am the center of the universe. Because life is all about me. That's the world we live in. But notice he says then in verse 14, and those who find it are few. Those who find, who enter, who find the narrow gate and travel by the narrow way, those who find that gate and who travel that way are few. But notice they find it. Interesting that this word is an active verb. It is active meaning that we must deliberately, intentionally, consciously choose that gate and travel that path. It is, yes, something that we are called to do, but it is a decision that we must render. It is a decision that we must make. It is a discovery that we must choose for ourselves, for God is not going to twist us and force us or make us to do that which he is calling us to do. But once we're convicted and convinced, we will travel that way. We will take that path. But we must find it. And those who find that, notice he says, are few. Few. The word few is, is a word that's interesting. It means an indefinite number of people. It means less than the crowd. There'll be few. There'll be a large number, but there will be fewer who will choose it rather than the larger number. Notice Matthew 22, verse 14. He says, for many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I choose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, the word that I said to you, the servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. We're, there's a divisiveness that takes place in the culture. You can't be politically correct in bringing all roads do not lead to the same place. I'm sorry. He's calling these people to step out of the crowd that they're belonging to, a crowd of, of self-righteousness, a crowd of self-indulgence, and step into a, a, a constrictive crowd, discover the path, enter through the narrow gate and travel the narrow path. Step away, step outside, 
There, there's, a, there's a divisiveness that takes place when we place our faith and trust in Christ. And many of you know that when you, when you finally got serious about your call and you answered the call and accepted Christ, there's a divisiveness that happened between you and your friends, you and your family, you and your coworkers. And, and, and it's, just, it's, it's, just, it's just the way it is. And because they hated him, they won't love you. And it is a divisive thing that's going to take place for those of us who commit to follow Christ. But not only is it going to be divisive, but notice it's not only a decisive, a demanding, and a difficult, and a divisive, but it's also a definitive call. It is a definitive call. It's a call that's going to finally take us to to the ultimate destination. It's going to define not only who we are, but where we're going to end up. Notice verse 13. But the broad path leads to where? Where does it take them? Destruction. To destruction. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that, that this word here is a figurative word that simply means hell. And what really astounds me more than anything else in these 37 years of ministry, that, that hell is a reality that fewer and fewer Christians are believing in today than at any other time in Christendom. And I know the reality of hell is something that we don't like to think about. But he says, Jesus says, that the path that, that people enter through the wide gate and the wide way leads to destruction. To destruction. It leads to hell. Let's take a look at some of the words of Jesus in Matthew 5.20. Take a look at the Bible. If you don't believe hell is real... Look at Matthew 5.20, I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, these self-righteous people, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is indicating early on in the Sermon of the Mount that if you are trying to get into heaven based upon your own self-righteousness, you will never get into heaven. You'll never get there. There are some who will never get to heaven. They will never inherit the eternal kingdom, heaven, that that is promised to those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus. Matthew 13, 47, Jesus himself said, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Describe hell to you. Matthew 23, 33, Jesus' own words, he says, You serpents, speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees, you broad of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? To hell. They are going to be sentenced to hell to hell because they are counting on their own righteousness to get them into the eternal kingdom and they're not going to make it. One last verse, Matthew 25, 31. Let's take a look at this word. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, Jesus said, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. 
and he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on the right, Come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom I have prepared for you from the foundation of the world, and give you drink. Verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. There is a separation. There is a divisiveness that's going to take place, and there is a definitive call. And that call is to escape the consequences of our sin. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believeth in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Notice that the path that is narrow, as we go through a narrow entrance, leads to life least a life, not only abundant life, but eternal life, eternal life in a place prepared for those who have discarded their self-righteousness and have placed their faith in his righteousness alone because of his sacrificial atoning death on the cross where he took upon himself our sin against the Father and died in our place. Now we, because of what he has done, not because of what we have done, because of what he did, we have eternal life. We're kingdom kids enjoying a kingdom life destined for the eternal kingdom, which is heaven. Hell is a real place where real people will go who have never placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's a decisive call, a demanding call, a difficult call, a divisive call, but it's a definitive call because it will once and forever define, seal, your eternal destiny. Christ is calling still today, not wanting that anyone should perish. Is he calling you? Is he calling you? There are many of us who have already entered by the narrow gate. At one time, at one point in our lives, we have passed through that gate. We have recognized our sin. We have recognized his perfect atoning sacrificial death on the cross. We have disrobed ourselves of anything and everything. We have walked through that constrictive, self-denying, self-sacrificing life to enter into this squeezing, restrictive life. And we've gone through that. But let me ask you something. How's it going, Christian? Well, I don't like the constraints. I don't care. I want freedom. No, you don't. I want to call the shots. No, you can't. It's not up to you. It's not up to me. It's not up to some fictitious interpretation of what we think the Scripture says to give us permission to live our lives any way we choose. It is a squeezing. It is a pressure. It is a tight walk. Jesus in 5, 6, and 7 in this Sermon on the Mount didn't make it this way. He brought it in, and he's saying the life of a disciple is a tightrope walk filled with sacrifice and denial, and it's the way of the cross. And the paradox is that in dying, I live. How's it going, disciple? on the journey, on the road, on that narrow path. For some of us, we'd have to honestly say, you know, it hadn't been going too good. I need to, I need to spend some time with the Father today and realize and recognize, you know what, I, I've been trying to, you know, 
I don't know why we think we can battle with him and, you know, you lose every time. I do it, you do it, don't we? I mean, I watched that during the holidays. My little grandchildren looking up at their big parents saying, uh-uh. I was at Mark and Tanya Mattingly's, you know, this weekend and watched that battle between child and parent. You know who loses? Who loses? The child. The child should lose. They should lose, parents. They should lose. You're going to battle with God, but you're going to lose, Christian, disciple. It's best to go ahead and give in, to follow him, to remove those things that don't represent Christ, that don't reflect his character, character that don't represent his nature, so that he can squeeze you and mold you into the perfect, perfect image of Jesus so that you can look like him. How long is it going to take? Till you die. Till you die. The way is from point A, the end. And everything in, that's the way. And there will be an end. You will either breathe your last breath or Christ will return. And until that moment, he's going to keep squeezing. You can look for an easier path. You can find an easier way. Go to another church where it's broad and accepting and loving. No, it's not. It's not loving. But there are some of us here who have, we've stood at this gate for quite some time. We've discovered the gate. We've discovered the the narrow gate, and we see the narrow way, but we haven't really quite stepped into it. Why? The call of Christ is for now. His, his call to these people right there was for here and for now. You're not guaranteed tomorrow or the next day or next week or next year. All you have is right here, today, right now. There is no guarantee that you'll be alive tomorrow. Gee, his word says today is the day of salvation. Today. That's all you have the promise of. Right here, right now. Why are you delaying? And there's some of you who don't really care about any of this that I've talked about, and you're just traveling the broad way. Well, let me tell you something. That way leads to destruction, to death, not just in this life, but eternal life. For Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And without Christ, you will not have life. Step into the abundant and the eternal life with us. Let's pray.